So it is my pleasure and privilege to introduce this year's Francis Schaeffer Conference on True Spirituality speaker, Miss Mindy Bells. Um, <clears throat> Mindy is an author, uh, a journalist. Um, she has served as the senior editor for World News uh, for years. Um, as a journalist since 1986, she's written and covered wars in the, from places the Balkans, Iraq, Afghanistan, uh, Syria, Lebanon. Uh, she's literally traveled the entire world and has written about it extensively. Uh, she's also written a couple of books. Um, Mindy is uh, here with us. She has four uh, children who have graduated from Covenant College. She and her husband, Nat, currently live in Asheville, North Carolina. She is awesome, and we are so grateful that she is here. Will you please give her a warm Scots welcome, Miss Mindy Bells. Wow. For someone who gets to be at a desk and sit at a screen most of this past year and a half, it's great to see your faces. Smile, smile with your eyes at me. <laughs> That's what we have to do, right? Hold on while I get my notes here. You know, some of us get to be covenant students. Some of us get to be parents of covenant students. Some of us get to be married to covenant students, but some of us never get to be covenant students. I am one of those rare Belzes who did not attend covenant college. I think right up front, we should have full disclosure on that. Um, but it's important for our topic today because I want you to understand that I, I mean, I want you to know I became a believer uh, actually at a summer revival held at a small Baptist church in central Virginia way back in the last century. And um, so it's, it's interesting, though, that soon after that, I went to work on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C., and I found myself as a 19-year-old um, working in an office with 10 people four of whom were really dynamic and amazing believers. And they began to invite me to their Bible studies, and they began to invite me to hear people speak on Capitol Hill. And two of those people who came and spoke in those years were Francis and Edith Schaefer. And um, what, what a privilege to look back on that now. Those were Francis Schaefer's last years of his life. And out of that experience of hearing him, my, my world was blown wide open. I began to read and devour his books and Edith Schaefer's books, and they shaped me as an early Christian. And, and here was the thing. I'm not telling you all here at Covenant anything new, but it was brand new to me that Christianity is not only about salvation. It is about, in the words of, of Schaefer, for the total man, for the total world. And that, that our Christianity begins not at our salvation, not at that moment of walking the aisle, but it get, begins with creation. It encompasses all the things. As all of you know, probably the, the, the phrase that the Dutch Calvinist Abraham Kuyper um, used of, of not a thumb's width of creation, that, it, that Jesus does not call mine. The teachings of this doctrine of common grace and the lordship of Christ over all of life 
is liberating and challenging, and it actually is something that has fueled my life with my kids, my family, um, my life of work, because it frees us to be brave, it frees us to move toward the pain and the suffering of the world, it frees us to enter into all the hard places. And that is a word that I, I don't know about you, but that I need to hear every single day. I can't just hear it one time and, and keep that straight. So how did I get here? When Chaplain Lowe called the summer, and actually I just wonder if this has happened to anyone else, I didn't have his number um, it, as his number in my phone, and so this message came up, and I went and looked at a number I didn't recognize. I went and looked at the transcription on my phone, and it said, Hi, Mindy, this is Grandma calling from Lookout Mountain. <laughs> but Grandma had a really deep voice. <laughs> and we played phone tag a little bit, and every single time I just would look, it became like a game for me. It would say, Hi, it's Grandma from Lookout Mountain. But he wanted me to talk about the persecuted church. And I kind of gave a little pushback to that because like so many things in our world, persecuted church has become a little bit of a cliche, has it not? What do you think of when you hear persecuted church? You think, oh, that's the church I can't do anything about. Oh, that's the church that makes me feel bad. That's the church that's far away. That's the church where go to our webpage and read all about it and then push the donate button. Am I right? It has unfortunately become more of an issue than a body of believers. And I hope over these next three days we can focus on the persecuted church in different ways and that we can think about them as a body of believers who have some connection to us and something to teach us. But there's another thing too, it's a little hard to say, but the persecuted church is no saint. And what I mean is, yes, it is a church full of saints, but it is also like our own church as a church full of sinners. And so I have watched as I've moved close and had the privilege of being close to persecuted churches in the Middle East, in Africa, and other places, now in Afghanistan. I have watched how they too become divided. They too have petty arguments. They too get caught up in majoring on minors instead of majors. They too lose sight of the, um, the gospel going into all the world for, for the total man and the total world. And, and I'm telling you this not so that you say, well, then why are we talking about them? But so that you realize we can relate to them. We're not so different. We're dealing with some of the same issues. I think that we can miss some of the lessons um, that the church, the persecuted church, I will say, has for us in the West if we persist in thinking of ourselves as somehow set apart. And so instead of talking about the persecuted church over the next few days, let's talk about the resilient church. Let's talk about the surviving church. Um, because honestly, um, these churches do continue to face dire challenges that I think are very different than the challenges we face, but we do face challenges and we can't look away from them. 
Right now, as we speak, I have a colleague who's reporting on what's happening to um, Christians in India. Hindu nationalists have been mobbing small groups of Christians, showing up at Christian homes, forcing people out of their homes, actually attacking and, and hurting them. There are attacks on Christians in Nigeria that have spiraled out of control. This has been going on, but it just seems to get worse and worse. In the month of August alone, 70,000 Christians in Nigeria were made homeless um, by those kinds of attacks. And the things that we hear about in the news, the, ethnic Christ the Christians who are ethnic minorities in Myanmar, in the instability that is there, they are being attacked and hunted. In Mali, in places like Ethiopia, where we don't think of of um, persecution. There was an attack this past year on a church that killed 800 people. And these things happen often when it's very hard for journalists and the rest of us to get there and to see what is happening. If we focus on these attacks and the threats, which is important to do, and it's a big part of my life, um, we can lose sight of the other people in this equation. The other people are the survivors. The other people are the, the remnant churches that continue after a mob shows up, that continue after ISIS moves in to places like Iraq and Syria and empties whole Christian communities. What happens to them? What, how, what can we learn from them? Really against reason, we see over and over and over again, they remain steadfast in their faith. How do they do that? What can we learn from them? In August and September, I was consumed with what was happening in Afghanistan and watching and following closely the scenes that all of us saw as the US military was supervising evacuations out of the Kabul airport. One of the ones that happened kind of below the radar during that time was a, an evacuation of the last Jew in all of Afghanistan. He flew out on a plane to a U.S. air base in the Middle East. Zebulon Simantov, 62 years old, who lived in a rundown synagogue, who said his prayers in Hebrew, and who stayed. He kept kosher, and he stayed living as a Jew in an entirely Muslim country after every other Jew had either fled or been killed. When he left, an Israeli-American businessman helped to arrange his evacuation. And when he got to the airport, he insisted on leaving with 29 of his neighbors. And they were almost all women and children. And I can only assume that they were all Muslims. Why would he do that? But obviously, he had created a community as, as any as he would do, you know, I mean, imagine, here is a guy who doesn't have a rabbi, who is um, having to sit Shabbat alone, recite the Kaddish alone. What would it be like to be the last Jew? That's a story of survival. But we Christians aren't like the Jews. We are evangelizing people, and we move into all the areas of life, and we cross ethnic and religious and geographic borders. And so I'm happy to say, though their situation is dire, that there are Christians in Afghanistan 
um, and that they, we're going to talk some more about them as we move through these, these three days that we have together. I can't imagine my privilege that we have three days together. Um, but even, even I, I checked in with some of these groups that are still, many of them are trying to get out of Afghanistan, small groups of believers. And um, one of them, one group in, and this is very typical, living in a safe house right now. They've been visited by the Taliban three or four times. Um, one of the people in the family had been killed, identified, pulled out in the street and killed. This is what they're living through right now, right here, right there as we sit here and speak. So let's talk about this persecuted church, thinking about those believers in their safe houses today. Um, focus on the dangers, but also focus on the survivors, the ones who are managing through the day and trying to not be the last Christian somewhere, not be the la like the last Jew like Zebulun Simatov, are focusing to hold on to their faith in the face of these incredible challenges. What is resilience? What is it we're after? What is it we see when we look at some of these groups? And where do we get some of it, right? Speaking of cliches, I did this very cliched thing and I Googled building resilience just to see what Google had for me. And it was interesting. A little box popped up. You can double check me and see if this happens for you. Little, and they were all bullet points. Eat well, move your body, get enough sleep, manage stress. And then you scroll down a little further and there was a little more, but also bullet points. Practice self-compassion. Cultivate opportunities for personal growth. Develop interests outside of your field or major. Make time for quiet reflection through meditation, prayer, journaling, yoga. Spend time in nature. Practice gratitude. We can all do these things in different ways and probably all of us have if we look back at our just at our pandemic time that we're still living through. But I will argue that most of them will bring you comfort and maybe some discipline in your life. Um, but here's the thing. What we see is the world de defines building resilience in, in a very self-centered sort of way, no surprise, but also with what? With a checklist with a to-do list. Christianity defines resilience as a love story. The Gospel of John tells us that Jesus, having loved his own, he loved them to the what? He loved them to the very end. This is the centerpiece of all that we believe. This is what we can boil it down to every single day, that wherever there is perseverance of the saints, wherever we see it in our own communities and in the communities of believers in Afghanistan or Mali or Ethiopia, wherever we see the perseverance of the saints, it is because of the perseverance of our Savior Jesus Christ. That atonement for our sins that he secured in his death has given us eternal safety. And here's the other thing. The love that Jesus has for his own, that he has persevered to the end, the end is not his death. 
The end is not even the moment of his resurrection. I was, a Bible teacher alerted me to something this past year that I'd never seen before in scripture. Maybe some of you have. We think of Christ's work as finished, and, and properly so in one sense. And we hear and see in scripture, he is seated at the right hand of the Father, seated in heaven. But when you turn to the book of Acts, and you get to Acts chapter seven, and this really dramatic, one of the most dramatic stories in all of scripture, where Stephen has been declaring who Christ is and declaring this um, just a massive confession and testimony of Christian faith. And he's about to be stoned for what he has said. And you've got Paul standing over on one side and these guys that are about to, to throw the stones, they're ripping off their garments because they're really getting to work. They're really serious about this and they're casting their cloaks at Paul's feet. And Paul, you can imagine, just standing there and supervising this scene. And Stephen is looking up to heaven and saying as Jesus said, Father, forgive them. And he's looking up to heaven and we have this incredible glimpse of what happened then. And that is that he sees Jesus and that Jesus is standing at the right hand of the Father. He's not seated, he's active, he's engaged. He is watching over this first martyr of the faith. He is watching over this drama that is unfolding with Stephen who is a leader in the church and Paul, his executioner, who's about to also become a leader in the church. This is an amazing scene that tells us how deeply Jesus is seated and standing at the right hand of the Father now, now engaged. So when it says, when the Gospel of John says that Christ loves us to the very end, we're not at the end yet. We're still in the good part. We're still in the part where Jesus engaged with what's happening to his church. In 2014, I had been covering the church in Iraq for about a decade by that time. Um, I, I went to Iraq to cover the war in Iraq. I didn't go to cover what was happening to the church, but I kept running into believers and I kept being fascinated by their stories. Um, there were believers in ancient churches and believers in newer evangelical churches. And you watched, I mean, even starting in 2004, continuing into 2006, bombings at churches, kidnappings, whole um, groups of church leadership disappearing in the middle of the desert, never to be found again. Incredible things that were happening long before the coming of ISIS. But ISIS was the tip of the spear. ISIS was, ISIS moved in, came down the Euphrates River, took control of Mosul, a city of two million people, and then moved out into Nineveh Plain, which was the seat of ancient Christianity, all these villages that had these old churches, some of them going back to the 200s and 300s, many of them still holding services, still gathering believers. ISIS routed them. It overran those villages. It forced people to leave. It gave them three, the fighters with ISIS gave them three choices 
to convert on the spot to flee or to be killed. And they had no choice but to flee. But it, in doing so, as we watched this, it was an incredible scene. There was literally a traffic jam in the desert on these key nights where people were getting out of the towns where ISIS was coming in, rousting them from their beds, forcing them at gunpoint to convert or to get out or whatever. There were nuns who were cramming people into these little four-door sedans. They, they said they put 12 and 15 people in each of the sedans to help get people out. At one of the hospitals in one of these Christian towns, there were several women in labor at the hospital when this all began happening. And the doctors decided that they had to perform C-sections to help them get out. And, help them, and they literally um, fled with their newborn babies and new stitches. It was an incredible sight. And it was tempting to think, why did they run? Why didn't they stay and fight? But as I interviewed them and moved into those villages and saw what had happened, I began to understand something very dramatic. They ran, they left their houses, they left their villages, they left their shops, they left everything because what was most important to them was holding on to the one thing. And the one thing was their identity as believers. The only way they could hold on to their Christian faith in the way that they had held on to it, some of them in families for thousands of years, was to run. And this is a dramatic picture that I think helps us to understand. We begin to see the ways in which resilience is built. And we'll talk about this more because resilience doesn't happen on the day that ISIS comes. It starts way before that. And it begins with the love that Jesus Christ has and his involvement that's present day with his church. And it deepens as we, like Jesus, suffer for his sake. And it gets exercised and toned and, and muscles, muscular, I'll say, when while we are suffering, we love and serve others, that we engage in everyday acts of service, small things that don't require a big name. These are the things I would, I would begin to see in that church as it was a displaced church, living in camps, sleeping on church floors. I would visit Christians who were living in abandoned or not finished hotel buildings, you know, where the, the windows, the walls, nothing was there, it was just flat space. And they were carrying on life. And the widows, the people who had lost their husbands in this fight, were being cared for by another family. The women were changing one another, the diapers of one another's children. They were making meals together. This is how they came together. It was an amazing picture of a community that was doing the same thing together in the same direction in ways that we can only dream of in the American church, right? As we approach the 20th anniversary of 9-11, I had the opportunity to interview Miroslav Volf. Miroslav Volf is a theologian at Yale University, and he's been through a lot. I've known him since he started a seminary in Croatia. He's a Croatian, and watched his work. He's been kind of the Forrest Gump of um, Croatian theologians, we'll say, because he's, he was, he was 
in the midst of Croatian massacres during the Balkan War. He was in the midst of the massacres at Srebrenica that targeted Bosnian Muslims. And on 9-11, he was up the street at UN headquarters speaking at a prayer breakfast when he walked outside and saw the planes fly in to the buildings. I asked him this because we were in a season, everything was happening in Afghanistan at this time. Um, we were seeing these horrible scenes at the, at the Kabul airport. We had had an earthquake in Haiti and there were so many people missing and just a number of things in that very week. And I said to him, coming out of 9-11 and what we see happening now, there's a tendency to think we have no control over anything. Most of us can't control these kinds of events. But if you've witnessed these things before, how do Christians think of our role in the world when we are tempted to feel helpless? Here's what he said. I think it's a fundamental question. We have to keep in mind the Christian faith arose in a situation in which not much could be done. So it is a central feature of our Christian faith, not just that it motivates change, which it does, and engagement, which it does, but often, especially in modern times, we forget that when the Apostle Paul speaks of the conquest of suffering, he doesn't mean alleviation of suffering. He means the resilience to live victoriously in the midst of suffering. Hope we think of as, I'm optimistic. There's a calculus. If I engage in things here or there, things are going to get better. The effect will be as I anticipate. That's optimism, and that's belief in my own agency. I'm still quoting Wolf. But Christian faith is a hope even when the situation is completely without any possibility of change. Abraham and Sarah cannot have a child, yet they believe, they hope. This newness of hope, notwithstanding circumstances, seems to be one of the great gifts of the Christian faith that we have forgotten how to avail ourselves of. My friends, I think we need this newness of hope. We need it to help us to build more resilient lives, more resilient churches and communities, and to build a resilient hope that will carry us way beyond where you are right now, way beyond where I am right now, all the way to eternity. So let's pray and then come back for more, okay? Father, thank you so much for this time. Thank you for the love of Jesus that goes before each of us to the end, to the very end. Thank you that we aren't at the end. Thank you that you are still striving with us, still watching over your people, watching over each one in this room as we go out this day. We are so grateful. We have so much to learn, so much to lean into, and we're so grateful that you have brought us together to do that. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.